Welcome to the 34 Circe's Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. again. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we are going to indulge some vengeance today. And that means it's female vengeance film time. And, uh, of course, here to indulge in the revelry will be the one, the only, Don Samalda. Hi, Don. Hello, I am. I am. We are recording. Okay, good. All right. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, all <laughs> the right. Listeners good. won't know that we had a little. We've been having a little technical difficulty with yes. our Yes, yes. Zencaster, if you're listening, your new platform iteration uh, needs another round of testing. <laughs> I, I wish I had the boo sound effects ready, but we'll, we'll yeah. do that later. We'll add them in later. Uh, and it's a special episode because we have with us the band is complete. We have uh, Vicky Noble is here, and we're all ready to play. Welcome, Vicky. Hopefully, the tech issue is overcome. Vicky, are you muted? She's muted, but she'll be here. We'll get the the adorable. Hi, call. I'm sorry. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, so uh, today we're going to be talking about. Velma and Louise, uh, the, of course, iconic movie. I just wanted to uh, start with a little blurb from uh, Roger Ebert, late Roger Ebert, and his review of the film. And then we're going to get the review from another famous reviewer from the early 90s, uh, her early 90s review. But we'll start with this Roger Ebert first. He says, Velma and Louise is in the expansive visionary tradition of the American road picture. It celebrates the myth of two carefree souls piling into a 56 T-Bird, I think it's actually 66 or 65, and driving out of town to have some fun and raise some hell. We know the road better than that, however, and we know the toll it exacts. Before their journey is done, these characters will have undergone a rite of passage and will have discovered themselves. So, with that, guys? Wow, that's an interesting... That's an interesting way to frame it. Yeah, what do you think of that? And I thought it was an interesting. Whose review, was, whose review was that, Sean? Roger Ebert. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it. I think it's uh, really missing um, the major theme of the film. Okay. Yeah. Women's what? liberation to be uh-huh. <laughs> and women's <laughs> awakening to you know to the violence around them and the. Um, you know, the, the decision to no longer um, acquiesce to it. Uh-huh, kind of by accident. <laughs> Absolutely, and with disastrous consequences because, yeah. you know, God forbid uppity women not be punished. But, well, um, yeah, it's, uh-huh. you know, let's, let's talk about when it was released. It was, you know, it came out in 91, 1991. Um, so that was a different time when we still had pay phones. <laughs> I thought that, you know, I thought the same thing as I watched it. I was like, wow, we all use the same phone and nobody thought anything of it. Well, and, and you know, the whole idea of 
of um, not being traceable by our cell phones, right? Yeah. Uh, that you had to stop and make a call somewhere. Yeah. Cell phones change a lot of that. There's, there is a romance. I mean, maybe for us because we remember pay phones, but there's a romance of pay phones and not having cell phones around and having to find a way. And in movies, it becomes a major plot point. But now, yes. yeah, yeah, it's a whole different, if it, you know, especially with uh, anything having to do with crime procedurals, of course, it's an entirely different world with cell phones. And probably um, filmmaking is so different in 1991. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I was struck, for instance, because uh, I, <clears throat> I watched it again recently, I was struck by the kind of, by the cinematography. Of course, we still have really great cinematography, but I was struck by the visual messaging, the, the not so subtle, um, coding in the in the visuals it reminded me a little bit like if you think about the the uh, the repeated scenes of old people mm. sitting in windows or on the porch or and they they were they seemed in stupors you know and we saw that over and over again and there was something about it that was so robert altman Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Did you think about that at all? I was really struck by it this time. Uh, I was I was struck by because I love Ridley Scott, you know, and he it's I think it's interesting because I think his female characters quite often are very strong. Um, if you think about Blade Runner and Daryl Hannah character, I think Chris was her name, um, who fighting back at something alien and uh, Ridley. Uh, uh, what's the character's name? The main character name. I know what comes to me, but his character. Uh, yeah, very powerful characters. And so I, when I looked at it, the thing that I noticed, uh, Vicky, was the way it was shot was so beautiful. And it reminded me of his own style, and especially. There were so many shots that you talk about the visual cues of rain slicked streets. It was always seemed to have just, it just rained and ah. so many times in the movie. And it made oh, everything look so Yeah, beautiful. it was the sort of contrast when the women went out into the desert. It was always it was bright and dry and sunny where they were, and then every t when we cut back to the you know the detectives and the the um, the police and the boyfriend and the husband, they were always in the pouring rain. Oh, yeah. that's interesting because yeah, that really is a metaphor, isn't it, for the uh, for the way that their space opened up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They came out of the bad weather into. Yeah. The the, but you know a harsh sunlight uh -huh. it wasn't it was it was stark but sometimes as well it was also uh it's also bittersweet or something you know the convertible the music the freedom mm -hmm. they felt even in trouble the yeah. western landscape really matched that or or uh contextualized it in some way yeah their space opened up you know, so I, wrote, broad. I wrote a review. I found this review last week accidentally. Uh, I wrote a review in 1992 in a feminist newspaper in Berkeley. Um, and, uh, and I focused a lot on uh, the planet Uranus. And um, the planet Uranus, you know, it's one of the outer planets, the first outer planet. And it and astrologically, it has a lot to do 
with the unexpected, with kind of shocking, unexpected things that happen, events or things that change in our lives, sudden awakenings, um, sudden changes that you can't go back from, and that kind of thing. And so I wrote quite a bit about that in this review. I thought I might bring a little of it into our... Please do, yeah. And I also just realized as I was noting this this morning and looking at the review, I realized that in 1991, when this movie came out, I was having one of the most changing uh, transits of my whole life. I had Uranus go over my midheaven in my chart. And in, in one fell swoop, the school I had founded and, and run for four years uh, closed its doors. My, the magazine I had published, Snake Power, um, folded. Uh, I, my marriage ended. My husband moved out. And uh, I, I, you know, that was that. And, uh, and I came out again for the second time and, and started dating women again. All that happened, bam, like somebody clapped their hands. Wow. And that was Uranus. And I, I was an astrologer by then, so I knew that. I was watching. Um, but, but it struck me as I was reading this review and realizing that that was the main theme for me in, in watching the movie. I just kept seeing the Uranian uh, themes. And I didn't even realize that, of course, I was right in the middle of it myself. That is a really, really interesting take on because you're right, there are these things that are just like these explosive moments. Things happen, and then suddenly they are they're transformed or they're, they're yeah, and they can't go back. Yeah, it's I, really I wrote one of the things I wrote just a couple of sentences. Uranus frees by cutting the cords to the ordinary and inspiring madness or vision in its place during an unexpected moment in time suddenly removed from the normal constraints of society and custom a person glimpses freedom and can never return to the past thus uranus has the capacity to bring total change overnight a complete paradigm shift and i felt like that's what i was watching and i felt like thelma and louise is a uranian story mm-hmm. from the beginning to the end you know that's really interesting. <laughs> well, let's me, do this oh, i'm sorry me- yeah, it makes me think of the phrase that they repeat a couple of times in the movie, or that uh, Louise's character repeats a couple of times during the movie, which is, you get what you settle for. Uh-huh. You get what you settle for. And there comes a point where they stopped, they stopped settling. Yeah, exactly. Before yeah, we go too far in, I just want to see if we could give, some, one of you, either of you could give the plot for the listeners who may not know. I mean, I... It is iconic. It is a legendary film, but there might be some people who don't know what it's about. Okay, well, spoiler alert. Yeah, really. (laughs) Of course, I'm assuming everyone who's listening has read, has seen the movie. But uh, just in case you haven't, we're going to give it away. Um, So (laughs) two women uh, who are um, in the, in sort of um, bad relationship moments with their male partners um, to plan a girls weekend to a cabin in the mountains where they're just going to, you know, get away from their lives. Um, Except uh, one of them, Thelma, the younger sort of more impulsive, also 
in a way more naive. Yes. Um, Gal uh, insists that they stop at a honky tonk um, on the way, on the drive there, uh, just to have a little fun. And um, played by Gina Davis, by played the by the amazing Gina Davis, exactly. Um, uh, she uh, gets drunk, gets herself into a bad situation that is just painfully familiar to many of us. And, um, and uh, oh, spoiler alert as well, there will be talk of rape. Um, so uh, she gets herself in a bad situation where uh, a dude that she met at the bar, who is clearly a predator, um, is in the process of raping her when Louise, played by the amazing Susan Sarandon, um, interrupts the scene and saves her. But uh, dude uh, cannot uh, read the room. And um, as the women are walking away, he uh, mouths off and uh, gets very aggressive um, vocally. And uh, Louise turns around and shoots him right in the heart, shoots him dead. And so then the rest of the movie is uh, them running from that act and from subsequent uh, things that they do in order to um, keep moving, um, keep running. And the hope is that, uh, Louise's hope is that they'll, they'll get to Mexico so they can be uh, in the clear. And they don't. They don't make it. They get backed up um, against a cliff face with you know a uh, hundred plus uh cops with um long-range rifles a couple of helicopters you name it i'm surprised they didn't bring a tank in there but let's and, don't go uh, there yet because <laughs> let's 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 leave it let's leave okay it. all right leave the final moment leave the final moment it's obvious where it's going but yes exactly because it's also mythic it's not just tragic yeah mythic yeah and let's do both okay let's, let's kind of go through and set it up a little bit in the sense of how it uh you know how it impacted each of us and how we what we what we came to see from it okay well why don't you go ahead and lead us in that vicky okay well i mean i loved things like the contrast that you've already mentioned a little bit between the two women they were clearly set up as uh, these characters who are quite opposite each other. You know, uh, Thelma is very naive and kind of jaded in this really shitty relationship that she needs to get out of, but doesn't seem to have any wherewithal or impulse in that direction. And, and Louise, who's very buttoned up and uh, gutsy. Um, and so uh, when they when they go through all their, they go through a number of things that we could talk about plot lines, you know, that are, that are really sad and uh, really unfortunate and just keep leading them to their destruction in a way, leading them to a bad end. Um, and you can, we can see that we watch it, you know, and, and in each case they're kind of desperate and it's an accident. Everything's an accident in a certain sense. I thought that was really interesting. And then I thought it was really, really well done how they switched roles, which, which I, I, I was fascinated by because 
I've been a lesbian now and then. And, and, <laughs> and I know that in uh, female relationships that are intimate, you know, there is a switching of roles. We're not locked in to the male-female binary sex role stereotypes. Sometimes lesbians take up those stereotypes anyhow. I don't know why, but they do. But, <clears throat> but we don't have to. And uh, so I was struck by when things really got just absolutely got to the worst point. And uh, mostly it was uh, Thelma's fault. Mm -hmm. <laughs> losing the money, the only money they had, yeah, the money that Louise had carefully gotten for them. Um, Louise, her life savings, her life savings, exactly. Yeah. And and Thelma loses it. Now, I thought there was an inconsistency. I don't know what you guys thought. Um, leaving the money in the room with Thelma, I don't really think that was. I don't think that was Louise's style. That was a kind of that's a built-in inconsistency in the plot that I wish they had taken better care of. But that's a, that's an interesting point. I'm just, the, it, it certainly is Thelma's style to forget that yeah. the money is there and just go and, you know, yeah. lose yeah. her head. But yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Vicky. That's so a good would one. you leave your life savings in Thelma's hands? No, of course no. not. Of take course it into not. the other room. <laughs> well, it, it, it makes me wonder what that said about, what was happening in the room with Louise and Jimmy. Yes. And for Louise in general, because yeah. she was reaching the point. I mean, it was very desperate what she did, what she had done. She just murdered somebody. So, you know, that's a problem. And I understand she could have been coming out of trauma, but it still struck me. But I thought then, then the way that they switched roles, Louise collapsing, you know, and just, yeah. Uh, that's it for her. It's over. And Thelma just takes charge. Steps in. Yeah. And I mean, it happened, you know, with with uh, women in partnerships and intimate friendships. You know, there's a way that that can happen that's very interesting and uh, liberating. One of them said, I think it was Thelma said, we're fugitives now. Let's start acting like it. Mm. <laughs> you know, there was so much comedy in all of the bittersweet and the tragedy. As with uh, the other movie we talked about, Promising Young Woman. Yeah, it's interesting, though, that they build, you know, Promising Young Woman as a dark comedy, but Thelma and Louise is billed as a drama. Yes. And or a road the, film, sure. Or a road film, but a drama, yeah. Uh-huh. And one of the things that I uh, wrote about, maybe I'll read a little bit from this review, because it was from su such a long time ago. And, and was so fresh from when the movie happened. Yeah. I said in the review, but I want to talk about the way the film opened my heart and reawakened my spiritual desires. I want to put the conversation into a different context and call into question all of the accusations of violence that have been directed at this film. There were a lot of reviews, especially by feminists, you know, who were very upset that, oh, it's just the same old thing, it's using violence. But I say violence relative to what? <clears throat> I took my six-year-old Down syndrome son to see it a second time, knowing that I would have to distract him for three minutes during the rape and murder scene, as opposed to almost any primetime evening of network news, which is so packed with violence. Yeah. I would never let him watch uh, 
oh, I would never let him watch that. Instead, I want to speak of the archetypes and shadows in the human psyche, the gender war, and 5,000 years of repression of the feminine, feminine manifestation of deity. I want to discuss the return of the goddess, women's liberation, and the emergence of a female-centered aesthetic. And Thelma and Louise, and then I talk about Uranus and what it is, and then Thelma and Louise, <clears throat> the two women embark on an adventure. They've never done this before. They have an innocence, and it's in the spirit of the unknown. These are all Uranian qualities. Mm. They're sick of their habitual passivity. This is what you were saying, Don. Yeah. Um, and the oppression of their gender roles. And they intend to find a doorway into some temporary freedom. Something quite unexpected happens, however, and suddenly they find themselves plunged into a totally new story where the old rules don't apply. Nothing they've known in the past can serve them now, and they're forced to open to new behaviors, thoughts, territories, approaches, and actions. Both women have to get bigger than they ever imagined and fast. The adrenaline from this task alone brings with it more excitement than either of them has experienced in her normal constricted life up to now, fulfilling a desire they didn't even know they had for adventure, fun, thrills, and so on. A lot of laughter from the largely female audiences comes in response to the breaking of this taboo against female wildness. Mm. And, you know, I really, uh, Thelma's awakening was just, totally real to me i i believed in her um everything she how she kept expressing the ways that she had waked up and changed um just really kind of thrilled me i identified with it yeah yeah i loved that moment when um it was it's towards the end of the movie but where the uh the clearly in love with his gun highway cop pulls them over for speeding and he's just doing all of these you know uh, just an endless list of demeaning and enforcing his power you know like telling uh, just telling her she has to take off her glasses she has to yeah. you know stand up sit down do this do that you know, it's just like and swollen with power. You could see it. And then Thelma is the one who, you know, because Louise is going to go along with it just to see if they can still sort of get out of it by being nice, by being, you know, uh -huh. two harmless women. And it is Thelma who just, you know, is like, okay, grab the gun and put the cop in the trunk of his car you know after but, apologizing to him profusely oh my god yeah so that's the hilarious thing is you know oh. as they're like uh could you give me your belt please we need the ammo you know and and they're so polite they're so very polite to him also he he says something about he's got a wife and kids and she yeah. says well good i hope you treat them well because look at what happened to me <laughs> Yes, exactly. My husband didn't treat me well. And you see how I turned out. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that that moment of like, you know, if you can't be a what is it if you can't be a good example, be a be a warning or something like that. Yeah. yeah really. But yeah, it was it was this like this um, 
process of the two of them sort of catapulting over one another yes. in their in their awakening, you know, that each one of them would take the next step, take the next step, take the next step. Yes, uh, uh, showing more more courage and less constriction. Yeah. More yeah. wild, just pure wildness. It was spontaneous courage, you know. Yeah. It was it was not, they're not role models uh, in the sense of their actions because they bumbled a lot, but they're role models in the sense of just they're every woman. They have the, they show us the capacity for uh, absolute awakening mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a normal, you know, manner, mannered person, <laughs> a woman, a woman who hasn't, uh, ever done anything like that before yeah yeah there's that yeah. wonderful moment again near the end when they're in the car and where Thelma says do you feel awake are you awake because I feel awake I feel yes. like I've never been awake before now yes and uh, then that, that was so Uranian yeah and then they stop and just you know admiring the beauty around them just taking in the world and feeling free to just experience beauty. Yes, and see, in that way, in the ways that they kept doing that, I I felt the same as uh, in our discussion about Promising Young Woman. I felt not only a kind of uh, down-to-earth feminist uh, depiction of what happens to women in our culture all the time, but also I felt a kind of spiritual inspiration mm. from the way that they showed and that the landscape uh repeated you know the the openness the incredible the wide-eyedness you know both of them were so changed by what was happening uh and they kept saying it you know louise said it things have changed yeah. everything's changed when they were going to Mexico and, yeah. and the wonderful uh, waitress from the bar saying uh, to the cop over and over again, neither of these two was the murdering type. Right. Yeah, you know, absolutely. We know they weren't. And yet that's what happened. Yeah. This, yeah. Uh, just amazing. And the language is, is just totally Uranian. Uh, something's crossed over in me and I can't go back. Mm, yes, you know, that's Uranus. And even when uh, Louise, you know, at one point after after Louise has her encounter with the cute young guy that they pick up, the hitchhiker who steals all the money after their wonderful sexual. Thelma encounter. does. Thelma, yeah. Well, oh yes, yeah, Thelma. Yeah. Whatever, yeah. whatever happened to that actor, the guy who played the hitchhiker? Oh, I don't know. I don't think he ever made another movie again. Oh yeah. <laughs> Come on, you guys. Yeah, Sean and I were talking uh, before we started recording about how young he looked in that movie. Like he looked like a baby. Yeah, absolutely. Although, although funny enough, when I looked up his age, he was almost 30. So it was really kind of interesting. Like it, he's so new to the world for us in some sense yeah, that he's yeah. like that. It just looks like he's a like a kid, like yeah. just out of high school or something. So, so for so, anybody anyway. who hasn't seen it, um, during their uh, wonderful sexual encounter, uh, he, he tells the story. She asks him and he tells the story and sort of acts it out right. of robbing a, a, a market or robbing a, robbing a, a gas station convenience store yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and then when it comes to them not having any money and needing to do something, uh, Thelma uses that whole, uh, that whole scene that he acted out for her. She goes into a, a gas station and does, and does exactly that. And she uses she, the same uh, script. Yeah. Using the script exactly. And they have her on camera so that, you know, the cops and the husbands are looking at it later. But I, what I loved was when she said, I think I've got a knack for this shit <laughs> afterwards. <you know? laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Just to interject for this too, because the, you know, the screenwriting and both, both this and Promising Young Woman, both the screenwriters won uh, Oscars for it. That's uh, right. Just yeah. to point out that the, this is incredible writing. Real, I, I thought very natural, very good. And, uh -huh. and it's, there's a depth to it and a play to it. So anyway. It's yeah. Carrie Curry, is it? Carrie Curry. Callie, Callie Curry. Curry. Yeah. She also uh, did Mad Money, you know, which is very funny and smart and has women kind of vigilantes doing, you know. Rough. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Because yeah. I was looking at her IMDb page. And, uh, you know, for writer, as is, you know, typical of women in Hollywood, having a hit movie doesn't get them the same sort of opportunities that men having a hit movie does, especially not in the 90s. Because uh -huh. the, the next credit that she has as a writer is uh, four years later. And then the next credit after that is seven years later. Yeah, it's and important I think, to point out. It's very important to point out. Yeah, Mad Money was much later because that's a more recent movie. Yeah, it's two thousand eight. Uh, uh -huh. Get that for Mad Money, so seventeen years later. Um, it's well, with for both Dawn and I, that's an issue that will come up a lot, and we talk about it a lot. The fact that the even when the opportunities are there for women in film, they are. Even today, I still think limited by some expectations, stereotypes, and uh, yeah, and and women directors talk about it all the time about how you know they they graduate from film school in equal numbers. You know, they have this first film right out of school that is you know critically acclaimed, a beautiful success, and then they wait, and no one knocks at their door, but their male classmates you know, are getting offer after offer after offer. So it's it's pretty pervasive in-, in There the was quite industry. a good uh, documentary done on that subject with a lot of the women directors participating. Yeah, uh, there've been a couple of documentaries that have uh, come out since, yeah. especially since um, the EEOC uh, investigation and, um, and of course, Me Too, really. Uh-huh, uh-huh really put put a lot of urgency behind that. But anywho, um, I thought it was interesting too that we, you know, as the women were sort of having this, you know, Harvey Keitel's character. Okay, so Harvey Keitel's character on the side of the women, quote unquote, right? He's trying to keep the whole situation from escalating. He at least has the smarts to recognize that the whole thing started out um, as an accident that they are not, these women are not killers, as the waitress said. Um, but, you know, then we still cut to him in these scenes where he's sitting with the boys 
And they're, you know, like reading girly magazines and making comments about and laughing at the husband's jokes about how crazy his wife is and all this sort of thing. So it is this interesting contrast that as the women are growing, the men are not. The women are growing and bonding. Yeah. And that's so often what women uh, writers and directors show uh, in in movies. That's how it was in Mad Money also. Mm-hmm. They, uh, at, at, do you remember toward the very end when uh, they're, they're talking about their situation, they're trying to decide what to do. And I believe it's Thelma says, whatever happens, I'm glad I came with you. Yeah. Now they're facing their death. Yeah. Moment. And that's really her truth. And she says, I guess I went a little crazy, huh? And Louise says, no, you've always been crazy. You just never had a place to express yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just a really wonderful script in the depth and the humor yeah. and the intense, uh, pithy, feminist concepts. Yeah, yeah. It's, would, it's still, sorry, I'm sorry. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's I would just, like it's ahead of time. You know? Yeah, I would say that um, it is interesting that the men were also bonding. You know, uh, like the, the, yeah, we're contrasting the way that the women are bonding and the men are bonding. But one of the things that I found really interesting watching this again, after we had just done our piece on the uh, promising, promising young woman. woman. Uh, the similarity in what the movie was like the mission of the movie part of its mission in each case was to show men in ways that they're usually that they don't uh, own up to you know most men that we interact with and have in our lives they're nice they're you know they're they're dudes they're like Sean they're good guys they they uh you know, they're respectful, they they don't hurt us, and so on. But there's always this, the lowest common denominator waiting for men to fall to it. And this mm. is probably true of women as well, you know, in terms of uh, sexual stereotypes. But with men, it's the, it's the testosterone, the locker room thing, and it can happen, um, it can happen in a moment. For instance, you know, even the predator type that you were talking about who who raped her, tried to rape her, um, he said, he kept saying over and over again, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. And they slapped her really hard yeah. in the face when she objected. You know, they turned vicious in a moment. Yes. And that's what we also saw in The Promising Young Woman. It's a kind of a, it's not a generalization about, you know, men are awful. It's more of an understanding of the social context in which men are given so much privilege and they and so little accountability yeah. for, for things like that. And, and the whole movie, Promising Young Woman, was about that. But and this one isn't so much about that, but a little bit. There was a similarity. It's a it's a generalization about patriarchy and the role of men in patriarchy and the level of privilege and entitlement that really kind of sucks the soul out of men. 
And so it's it's one of the ways that we are meant to understand how patriarchy destroys men and women, not yeah. just women. You know, it's terribly destructive for all of us. It it steals something very precious uh, about our authenticity, and it and it's always so important then to somehow unbraid or separate out masculinity from patriarchy. Mm. So that we're not really demonizing. Yeah, so that we're not demonizing masculinity because some of the reviews that came out, as you can imagine on Thelma and Louise in in the time after the movie first released, they were they were they were uh saying that it was man hating and it was, you know, this and that, which is not exactly what was going on. It was more right. exposing the kind of underbelly of patriarchy and what it's like. It was simply looking at it from the woman's perspective for a change. What it's like to be a woman in these instances. And, so, and oh, sorry, please. yeah, and what those critics, of course, failed to recognize is that, you know, there wasn't a woman in the audience who didn't immediately recognize and identify with the world that the, these women were moving through. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's, it's interesting to look at. Well, first, Mickey, thank you for such a kind, kind words. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's what's interesting from my perspective is that you there are so many things you're not conscious of going through the world as a guy. You know, when I look at, so there are two things. So one from a film and one's just one from life. So when I look at the film, it really is interesting because it does give you the sense of just, there are all these dudes everywhere. It's just a bunch, there'll be like just groups of guys. And so you you get this sense of these just individual one or two women moving among groups of men in usually in some position of authority. But the the unconscious stuff that, you know, guys, we just don't even think about. Like, I remember, and I don't even think I told you the story, when I would, during the lockdown, I was trying to make sure to keep in shape and just kind of go out and exercise. I'd go out at all hours of the night and just go jogging or biking. And when I tell uh, the women I was friends with that I was doing this, they were just, they were shocked. They were like, you're really going out? I mean, and I didn't think that for me, I don't even think about it even though probably still should think about it and I do, but I didn't think about it. I just went out at any time because those kinds of dangers don't occur to me. Right. That's an unconscious kind of privilege that I can tell you most guys don't even think about. Yeah, you can move through the world with a freedom that women cannot. Robin Morgan wrote a book about that, a very moving book called uh, The Demon Lover. Mm, yes, yes. Yeah. It was incredible. She started it that way and she ended it that way. That a woman walking down the, you know, a woman walking down the street and hearing footsteps behind her uh, is in a state of anxiety at the very least. Yeah. Um, whereas that doesn't happen for a man. Now, these days, you know, who knows? There's It's a long time and there's more robberies maybe and things. I don't know. I, yeah. I'm not keeping up and so. it's and it's not you know of course it's not universal um i have a very dear friend who's a man who he's um he's short he's five two mm. and uh he has some of the you know he has to have some of the awareness that women do because he has been preyed upon by other men wow. uh, because he seems like an easy target uh-huh. and also it's kind of it, it can be crazy so while generally you won't think about footsteps behind you but it kind of depends on where you are in town i mean 
if you're downtown at two in the morning and it's a shady neighborhood, maybe you worry about the footsteps. But generally speaking, like you're saying, it's not something you, you think about. But like you yeah. point out, Don, maybe her size also matters and things of that sort. So yeah, yeah. It's there. But, but um, yeah, but in this, it, you really do get that sense. I mean, both this film and Promising Young Woman, I think, from the standpoint of a guy watching, I'm not speaking for all guys, but at least for me watching it, <laughs> the sense I got was of really being what it the sense that there's this other space a woman is in you're in this space and that space is filled with um this kind of um, why don't you say patriarchal but it's filled with a lot of men who have a lot of power yeah yeah exactly there were a couple of other moments that sort of the contrast uh that the filmmaker used putting two scenes side by side really uh, really interested me. One was, um, you know, obviously the rape and murder in the parking lot. And then when we see Harvey Keitel and the waitress in the parking lot, and she is really coming on hard to Harvey Keitel. Yeah. You know, she's like leaning into his space and, and, um, and, you know, being coy with him and, and teasing him. But there is absolutely no threat to Harvey Keitel like he just sort of laughs it off and goes on his way uh-huh. and so this is the sort of contrast of that same very same parking lot that they were in where a man you know exerted his power to harm a woman and then in that exact same space we see the roles were gender roles reversed and there is no danger to the man wow. whatsoever that's, a, that's, uh-huh. a great, point that, that's great yeah. Play that out with the power. I mean, I think when we talked about the book, the power. Yeah. That that we talked about that because it is. It's a sense that guys don't have in the same situation, but in that book, the book, the power, it shifts and then it does become fearful for guys. So it was. A, it's a very interesting. Yeah, that was a great contrast. I and didn't... also in a promising young woman, every single man that she set up uh, in that uh, role reversal thing she was doing. Uh, what got mad and got scared got scared what are you crazy yeah. you know when yeah. she sobered up when she obviously wasn't a- after all so drunk yeah uh, each of them was frightened and uh, set back and immediately you know immediately went to anger as they're yeah, going to got vicious yeah yeah. Exactly. yeah and then the other two scenes that I enjoyed the way they were contrasted with one another were the the motel scenes where, you know, Thelma is undergoing her sexual awakening in many ways, because she says, you know, earlier, she says she's never been with any other man but her husband. And, you know, he is obviously not, not a considerate lover. Let me put it that way. Um, And so she is, you know, uh, with this con man who then turns around and, you know, takes everything away from her. But in the you know, in the other hotel, motel room where Louise is with her boyfriend, you know, you're getting this amazing scene where his violence, he's also doing her violence in in a different way, you know, because he, she says, I'm not going to talk about what happened. And he's like, and so he tries to, you know, he, he keeps pushing her. And then as she's about to leave, he proposes to her, he hands her a ring. Yeah, but he's never looks at her like they're standing side by side and he's looking straight ahead back into the room. He's not looking at her. 
And then after she, you know, she takes in the ring and she says, I thought, you know, uh, why now? And he says, I thought that's what you wanted. Uh-huh. You know, before tipping over the table and throwing everything, you know, across the room. <laughs> so he's, it's like he is, even though he loves her and she, you know, he is the one that she settled for. Um there is still, she is still in a room with someone who could do her violence at any moment. Uh-huh. Or at least could scare her. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is this, like, she is, even with the man that she is most intimate with, that she loves, and he says he loves her, um, she is still, like, having to walk very carefully in how she how she manages herself in well, this I, meeting in this uh, same review that i've been going back to which by the way i called bitches from hell because that was the, <laughs> the, report, the epithet that the obnoxious truck driver called them do you remember in, in when they that's right the yeah yeah, yeah. up the truck yeah and bitches from hell comes from uh, a study of lilith and I wrote a little about that. Uh, let's see if I can trim it down here. Um, when Sumer was colonized by the new patriarchal society 5,000 years ago, Inanna, the goddess of the upper world, had her sacred tree cut down and made into a marriage bed under the influence of her new consort, Demutsi. Lilith and the serpent who had shared the tree with her both flew away into exile. Later, the biblical Lilith, Adam's uncompromising first wife, mm. uttered the name of God in frustration and went to live by the Red Sea, where she was seen copulating with demons and having hordes of demon children. And then later still, Lilith, who was originally the protector of women in childbirth, became known as a stealer of children who had to be protected against. And then finally, in the Middle Ages, uh, she, she had originally embodied untamed nature and female sexuality. She became instead corrupted as the night hag or the incubus who was responsible for men's wet dreams and uncontrollable sexuality. In line with her demonization, nine million European women were murdered as witches during the Inquisition. The women's movement constitutes an undeniable threat to the status quo mm. and the factor of untamed female nature wreaking its revenge on men must loom large in our collective psyche. Thelma and Louise has tapped into this shadow image and brought it to the surface where it is making waves that seem disproportionate to its status as a popular movie. When Louise shot Thelma's rapist, she functioned archetypally as Lilith, taking revenge for all of us. For a decade, the media has asserted that we were beyond feminism and that the women's movement was over. Even as the media has promulgated this lie, the violence against women has quadrupled and women's shocking stories of incest and abuse have come into the public forum. Now, this was way back in the 90s. Right. 
you know, now we have the Me Too movement. We know it's like it's so so ubiquitous yes. that it's uh, almost every woman's experience in some way. And so I I I felt that you know I just I linked this to the women's movement. I said when women awaken to their own interests, they always have an impact in the public arena. Remember, it was housewives who started the meat boycott, and so on and so on. Right. Um, it's something of a frightening thought to imagine the whole collective of women suddenly feeling empowered enough to defend themselves against rape and murder. Yeah. And degradation. Uh, but a mere thought form can sometimes function as a prophylactic, as in the case, oh, never mind. Uh, but like this movie, like yeah. Elma and Louise, Bitches from Hell. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we were talking about the sort of cathartic feeling that Promising Young Woman gave us. Uh -huh. That, you know, that there is, um, you know, in turning the tables and in becoming a bitch from hell and and in yeah. visiting the violence upon those who have done us violence. You know, it's it's not on a on a larger sort of philosophical, spiritual plane. It is not a good thing to meet violence with violence because then the violence just keeps going, keeps escalating. But, but in each case, the women sacrifice themselves. Yeah, yeah. Rather but, than doing, you know, more Yeah, violence. And in the short term, that sort of returning violence for violence is a, a sort of vicarious catharsis. It is, that's true. Yeah. Because we kind of wish that all women would stand up and fight back. You know, I've, I've wished that my whole life. Yeah. Uh, the the ending of the movie. Can I talk about it now? Of course, of course. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. The ending of the movie I wrote, far from being tragic or demeaning to women and feminism, as many of the reviews had, had indicated, simply makes the radical statement that spiritual freedom can take precedence over the physical life of the body. Mm. Or put another way, death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. Right. The numbness and limitations of their past, combined with the hardships and degradations that awaited the two women at the hands of society, were not worth saving their physical lives for. They weren't suicidal and despairing. They weren't making a bad show for feminism, as some critics have maintained. On the contrary, they were choosing, in Thelma's words, to keep going their clasped hands as they went over the edge of the Grand Canyon together represent an archetypal image, not a how-to. The movie is probably not going to incite women to untimely deaths or make them fearful of going too far, as some feminists have feared. If anything, the underlying emotional thrill of their fearless acceptance of their fate, combined with their courageous refusal to turn back is very inspiring on a deep unconscious level for the girls and women of the next generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean they knew what the what the the other option was, you know, and and Louise talks about it a little bit on the phone, you know, that last phone call that she makes to Harvey Keitel's character yeah. Yeah. where she says, you know, I'm thinking about 
you know, electric shock and, and, you know, the, the brutalities of prison basically uh-huh. and uh-huh. saying, you know, do I want to live? Is that living? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. And- I mean, they would have been treated abysmally brutally by, by a system, um, a male system for what they did. There is no doubt. Yes, exactly. Just the lopsidedness of the male dominant system and the the privileged uh, arena of men and the, the, what would you call the oppressive uh, region of women. And, And the way that, you know, when women do try to rise um, you know, the, the, the oppressive system will slap them down three times as hard because yeah, you've got to make sure that, you know, no one gets that this doesn't catch on in other words. Yeah. It's um, so unladylike. Yes. Yeah, it is. And we have to, we have to, you know, enforce the system Yeah, um, before anybody gets out of hand. Yeah, Vicky, you wrote that uh, the last thing you said in, in your review was inspiring the next generation. I, I just maybe one way to sort of tie this up is I wanted to ask both of you, since it has been a full generation or and more yeah. since this film came out. What do you what do you both think about how it did both in culture, let's say just in reality, inspire women or what effect it may have had, if any? And then what about in film did we see? Because I, I look back on it and it was. And I had, as I mentioned to both of you, I hadn't seen it before. So I'm looking back in time as I watched it and yeah. thinking about differences. But what do you guys see as what happened going forward? What was your sense of it, looking at well, it now? Well, I've, uh, you know, I've helped to raise three grandchildren since then, two grandsons and one granddaughter. My granddaughter's 22 now. And I was very close with her and 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 pretty close with the boys. And, uh, you know, I tend to, I'm concerned about the apolitical. I mean, it's not like they don't have politics and they, they don't, they do, they talk politics and they, they have some consciousness, but they're, they're pretty cynical, which I don't blame them for at all. We're in a very cynical moment in our history. And it does seem, I can't imagine being their age uh, at this point, and looking to the future, uh, you know, with with all of its uh, forbidding, foreboding uh, promises, it's a really scary time, and they don't seem scared. They they are doing something else about it. They're putting their heads down and trying to live their lives. Uh, in a way that I, I find interesting. I'm I'm waiting to see if there will be, like for instance, after the the uh, after the Supreme Court decision mm. to get rid of Roe, uh, and and the fact that now you know women all over the country some can't at all, and others are really challenged to get good health care, including abortion and even uh, birth control. I, I I just kind of feel like this is a moment when there needs to be an uprising and not just women, you know, young men are affected by this too. Yeah. Uh, now, a lot of them have taken the political step of getting vasectomies and uh, posting about that. That's mm. very interesting. That's a very interesting personal contribution to the issue, to the problem. 
but um, but you know we we're not really seeing them. They're not really on the streets, and I don't know if that's even is that does that do anything anymore? You know, we're just we're in such a uh, deeply um, fascist moment of politics in our society. So I don't know what they're supposed to do. I'm glad they grew up healthy and whole, you know, and I'm waiting to see. <laughs> it, it's it's interesting, just as just an <clears throat> interjection on just the political aspect of it. I was having a conversation. I've been having a conversation with a few different friends about what I see happening politically. I think some of the cynicism may come from and not to go way off topic, but there's so much, there's such a concentration of wealth now, and that wealth seems to, no matter what the good intentions of the populace, it can influence anything it wants, that great wealth I'm talking about, That's the right. individuals have it, to knock whatever movement is happening in a completely different direction or prevent it or co-opt it or whatever. So that may be some of the cynicism that they're feeling. Just yes, so absolutely. And they know that. They're watching, you know, and then everything, uh, you know, their poor little lives, their little personal lives. How are they even supposed to, you know, my granddaughter has managed to live in New York City. She's doing it. She has a job. She's actually managing. I mean, I'm thrilled for her. Like that's that's an incredible accomplishment at this moment in time in a way that it, it wasn't uh, when I was her age. And, and a wonderful I, city it is, I just <clears throat> <laughs> so I, I have a couple thoughts about about what you both have been saying. Um, I, I would like to sort of well, first of all, I just I just want to put forth the, the idea that a promising young woman could not have happened without Thelma and Louise. <laughs> that's that's good. That's good. Donna. But there is a yeah, there is a continuity there. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and then the other the other thought about the final act of defiance in um in Thelma and Louise is very sort of in my mind is kind of kin to the kind of organizing that was going on in the 70s that there was this sort of like you know freedom or death type of uh -huh. um, that we have that we are changing the world you know we are we are going to change things we're not going to put up with the way it was before and so we're going to light the world on fire if we have to yes and i think that this in the years since Thelma and louise came out i think the new generation have sort of looked back on that and seen that that all of the gains it seemingly all of the gains that were made by that way of um, organizing community organizing and and you know trying to change the world have been eroded and so there is a sense of what can I do yeah and that makes me think of the sort of quiet quitting which is the current term for it there but it also makes me think of what we said when we were talking to Mary Lou what you said when you were talking to Mary Lou is this idea of falling out of the patriarchy. Uh-huh. Just sort of stepping out of that. Falling back into the matriarchal background, as Mary Daly put it. Yeah, and I don't think necessarily that this this move this generation and the sort of, you know, Gen Z sort of quiet quitting type of thing is thinking of falling back into the matriarchy. But I think they are thinking of just stepping out of the of the rat race, like 
and living lives and living their own individual lives right like I will not find I will not be able to change the world into a place where I can be happy so instead I'm just going to step out of it enough that I can that I can devote my energy to making my life a place where I can be happy yes and it's a very different type of rebellion than the ones that I think the three of us are used to. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's so not what, what, quite sorry. as, yeah, it's not quite as splashy as going over the cliff in, you know, a vintage uh-huh. car. It's more, you know, sending out texts to the right people at the right time to tell well, them that. Where's the fun in that? Well, I'm kidding. I'm just yeah. Kidding. It's a different. It's a different yeah. paradigm. Well, I wanted to ask you, Dawn. How does that? How does that paradigm play out when we talk about specifically? You know, obviously in this case, women's issues. This kind of quiet quitting. This doing something at an individual level. Are there some examples? I well, mean, I mean, I, I, I don't have examples. I have objections, I guess, because no, okay. although I completely understand, I completely understand why that is a strategy i also you know maintain repeat ad infinitum i'm going to get stickers and a t-shirt made you cannot solve systemic problems with individual solutions yeah yeah right I, so yes agreed so it goes for everything right now not everything just, it's everything we we've become so atomized yeah. And so individually focused or so focused on our so-called individualism that we've lost track of the fact that everything is connected. Everything is connected. I, lo- and, I love that, Dawn. Make a t-shirt, please. Yeah. I'll, wear it. I'll wear that t-shirt. That's yeah, great, because, great because and, 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 you know, I think that as a, as an attack on, as a way to undermine the kind of collective organizing power that people had in the in the 70s and and even some in the 80s as well Uh um there has been an emphasis on like in advertising and in corporate like everything is like buy this bag in order to support the rainforests you know there's there's been this conscious marketing effort to turn people towards little individual things that you can do to change the world because it is not effective. (laughs) It doesn't actually change it. It's sort of like uh, capitalism has won, but Mm -hmm. they've only won. It's really, it's not the whole war. They've won a battle as people like to say, uh, because the, what are you calling it? Quiet quitting? Quiet quitting is the term. That's a resistance to the power, uh, the overpowering colonization of our culture by the capitalist mentality. Yeah. And the capitalize on everything. So, you know, the pandemic happens and people capitalize on it and get rich. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the homeless problem happens, people capitalize on it and get rich. It's incredible the, the lack of empathy the sense of separation. And these are all spiritual crises. Yeah. And how we're all being encouraged to to look for those situations to get rich quick, right? 
Yeah. Like startup yeah. culture is all about like finding your niche and capitalizing on it so you can get rich. Yeah. 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 Anyway. No, I think that's Don. A week. This. Yeah. This is we a digress a bit. No, no, that's, no, no. <laughs> this is a topic dear to my heart. So it's a digression that needs to be done. So I'm glad we did go there. And yeah. we need to talk more about it in some other way. Yes. But all right. So we've come to the end. And I don't remember if we did a, a rating system last time. I know on our sister podcast on the Parallax, Gary and I have a rating system for the classic films. So I don't know. I'll, we'll call it five. We'll call it matriarchs for today. I mean, five matriarchs, whatever you want to call it. But what would you guys say as you were, how would you rate it in the typical uh, fashion? Five stars, four stars. What would you do? How would you? Oh, the best. All right. Just want to this. Ask. And so I, I, I suggest that we do Mad Money next because it, it really, uh, we're talking about capitalism. <laughs> yeah, interesting. interesting. Okay. Interesting. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, we talked a little bit about, you know, potential sort of female revenge films. And, and frankly, after watching it again, I can't say that Thelma and the Reeves really feels like a female revenge film. It feels like a female awakening film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mad Money isn't a revenge film, but it's a, it certainly is a vigilante action. Awesome. All right. Well, we, let's okay. definitely put it on the list. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone. John, did you want to give a weight rating? If no, you I, 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 just, I, okay. I, I had a I, feeling you were going to avoid that I don't, one. I don't think oh. about, you know, yeah. I'm not a raider. I'm not I a raider. No, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate it's part that. of being a Libra. <laughs> all right but yeah, we all agree that it is a wonderful film Indeed. and uh, if you haven't seen it please see it i want to thank you all for listening i want to thank of course i don't have our sound effects but you can pretend there's a adoring crowd i want to thank vicky well thank you vicky for... yeah thank you it's just lovely to have these discussions with you too absolutely and i love how you were able to tie in the review that you wrote yeah like yeah, when would, the would, movie came out, those fresh ideas of the time. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah I was totally shocked when it was a complete accident, a synchronicity. <laughs> Absolutely. A <doctor> intervention. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Thank you, Dawn, always for your insights. So and you. you as well, Sean. Thank you. And thank you yeah, all thank for you listening. Both. This has been the 34 Cersei Salon. Make matriarchy great again. We will come back to you very soon. Take care. Take, take care, everyone, and blessed be. Thank you.